This podcast is funded by Ted Dintersmith, the executive producer of the acclaimed film Most Likely to Succeed, and the author of the best-selling book What School Could Be. Hey everyone, welcome to the What School Could Be podcast. I'm your host, Josh Rapoon. Before we start the show, please check out all the resources at whatschoolcouldbe.org and our global online community. Simply install the What School Could Be app on your mobile device or navigate to community.whatschoolcouldbe.org. I hope to see you there. Today, my guest is Dorothy Maxwell, an educator in face-to-face and online teaching and learning for more than 50 years. She holds a bachelor's degree in business education from the University of Maine, a master's degree in education, and a certificate of advanced study in educational leadership from the University of Southern Maine. She has served as president of the National Business Education Association, the Eastern Business Education Association, the New England Business Education Association, and the Business Education Association of Maine. Dorothy was the 1994 Maine Teacher of the Year and has been recognized by the Milken Family Foundation with its National Educator Award. Moreover, she received the National Secondary Teacher of the Year Award from the National Business Education Association. The primary reason why I wanted Dorothy on this podcast is that she is the vice chair of the board, a site coordinator, and a teacher for a remarkable organization called Virtual High School Learning, which has been around more than 20 years. VHS Learning, a nonprofit organization, provides supplemental online classes to high schools and students. It offers schools a way to expand their catalogs without incurring the full cost of a class for which there may be limited demand. That, in turn, has helped many schools offer the full suite of classes that students might desire, in spite of budgetary pressures. It's been a valuable way for many institutions to expand their course catalogs and dip their toes into online learning. Back in 2015, after the debut of the acclaimed film Most Likely to Succeed, the film's producer, Ted Dintersmith, with his co-author, Tony Wagner, wrote the book by the same name. In the hardcover edition, on page 204 and 205, Ted and Tony wrote about VHS learning, citing it as an exemplar of both online learning and education reimagined. On these two pages, Ted and Tony noted that Ted's daughter, Sterling Dintersmith, took one of VHS Learning's courses while she was in high school. I contacted Sterling and asked her to share her thoughts about her experiences in the history course she took. Here's what Sterling said. Quote, about a decade ago, I took a history course at VHS about the early European explorers of North America. Each week, we would have a different discussion question that each student would answer in a forum. Then, we would each respond to each other's writings. We got really into it. 
I can still remember logging in multiple times per day to check what people were saying and to engage in lengthy debates on the different topics. I ended up spending way more time and energy in the course than was required because I just enjoyed engaging with my peers and hearing so many different perspectives. Plus, the teacher made sure to use the study of history to highlight and investigate themes that are relevant to society today and to our personal lives. Therefore, we all felt like what we were learning mattered and was relevant. We bought into the class and we poured ourselves into the class." End quote. And now, here is my conversation with the Vice Chair of the Board at Virtual High School Learning, the amazing and remarkable Dorothy Maxwell. Dorothy, welcome to the What School Could Be podcast. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be with you, Josh. So Dorothy, you grew up on a small farm in rural Maine, and you attended Livermore Falls High School. So I have a two-part question for you. Here's part one. In what ways do you carry with you your upbringing on a small farm, you know, even to this day? Like, what were those experiences like growing up on that small farm, and how do they continue to inform your life as you move forward? Well, the biggest thing growing up on a small farm does teach you is the importance of hard work, perseverance, and the importance of recognizing the value of hard work. And I was always encouraged by my parents to ask a lot of questions. And fast forward to today, I still believe in hard work, and I still believe in asking a lot of questions and applying all of those basic principles in life in about everything I do today, from the simplest activity to a, the more complicated activity. Mm -hmm. And so here's the, the second part to the question. Contrary to most of my guests' experiences, you actually loved school and found it engaging. So what did you love about school growing up? What did you love about learning? And, and what, during your schooling experience, engaged you, Dorothy? What engaged me was that my parents, at an early age, taught me how to read and mm. when I started school, and by the way, I did not go to pre-K, I went right into the first grade mm. in a okay. small two-room school, and there were three students in my class, and from the get-go, I always enjoyed reading and would get my work completed ahead of time, and the teacher would always give me more work to do. So when one assignment was done, 
there would be more waiting. It, it was continuous. So when I was in the first grade, I was doing the second grade work and so forth because in that two-room schoolhouse, there were grades one through four mm-hmm. in one room and five through eight in the other. Mm-hmm. So I would say reading was very foundational. And I also went to church every Sunday. And going to church, I went to Sunday school and regularly, which was a very, in the end, clarifying experience for me because I liked working with the younger students. And that's where I sort Mm. of got interested in teaching. Mm. Wow, that's really neat, Dorothy. You know, I remember when I was about to enter kindergarten, my mother, who had already had five sons and one daughter, I was the last, I was the youngest. She had a some sort of an accident. I don't remember exactly what happened, but she broke her leg. And it was just like a few days before I was supposed to start kindergarten. And so she made the decision not to send me to kindergarten because it was going to be too hard for her to get me there. And so we spent, I actually remember this very clearly, a marvelous year together while she was recovering from her broken leg. But she was my teacher for an entire year, my kindergarten teacher. Isn't that cool? Mm -hmm. And so I also very much aligned with you in that I recall what we did over that year was read, 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 read. Everything was reading and writing as well. She would have me do dictation. And so that's really neat that you had that experience. And we will talk about the multi-age classroom a little bit later in this conversation but first, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to switch directions just slightly. You know, Dorothy, my wife and I have a real love for Bar Harbor, Maine. <laughs> Our stay there was the highlight of an East Coast road trip we took about 10 years ago. So what is your affinity for Bar Harbor? How, how does this small coastal town in the down east corner of the United States loom large in the life of Dorothy Maxwell? Well, what happened is that when I was 15, I had asked my parents, I wanted a summer job. And my mother and father said, well, who do you think is going to hire a 15-year-old? And I said, if I can get a job, can I go away for the summer and work? And my mother said, well, you get the job and then we'll discuss it. Mm. So remember, this was before the internet and computers and I went to the library and I took out this very thick book that was the main chamber of commerce directory Mm. and in it were listed all these places and I made a list of about eight places along the coast of Maine and one of them was Bar Harbor and I wrote hand wrote because You mentioned writing. That was another thing I had to do a lot of. And so I wrote these personal letters, and I got this response from this woman who owned a restaurant and cabins in Bar Harbor, just outside of Bar Harbor. It's a part of Bar Harbor. It's called Hulse Cove. And she wrote me right back, and she was a first-grade teacher, and she and her husband always had summer help. So... I showed my folks the letter 
And long story short, they took me up there for an interview in March. I'm 15, remember? Mm. And in July, I went there and they let me go there. And I fell in love with it. First of all, I loved being away from home. I loved the freedom. The scenery is spectacular. And I was a waitress and I worked two summers at this restaurant in Hull's Cove, which is a part of Bar Harbor. And then I went in town three miles and worked at this restaurant, which no longer exists, Young's Lobster Pot, and served more lobsters than in every form that you can imagine. But I worked there for all of the summers through high school, all of the summers through college. And I worked even a few more beyond that. The affinity was that I loved the island, Mount Desert Island. And I've gone back every single summer, except for a couple that I wasn't able to go because of just things that came up. But the affinity is the combination, and I met so many great people. The affinity is the people, the place, the whole atmosphere of working in a summer place. It's very motivational and a lot of fun. Mm. Yeah, that's a marvelous story, Dorothy. I, I, I remember at the same age, I think it was 14 or 15, that my dad had me start working with a contractor who was doing interior work in houses in my home state in Hawaii, which is about 6,000 miles away from where you were growing up. And his name was Ed Barrichter, and, and he used to carry around something called the Book of Jobs. And it had like 10,000 listings of different types of jobs. And he would open it up and make me go through it and say, what do you think about this job? And what do you think about this job? And we would have all these conversations. So that's great. That, that sounds like a, a super informative experience in your life. And boy, do I love Bar Harbor. One of these days, I'm going to get back there. Um, that would be great. Well, I've already been there this summer and I subscribed to an online newsletter called Catch Up at the Jessup, the Jessup Library. Mm. And they have this phenomenal book sale. And I just read that they made $12,000 on it this summer, two weeks ago. Wow. Yeah. Awesome. So Dorothy, a couple weeks ago, I read a blog post by Jennifer D. Klein, one of our What School Could Be team members. And in the blog, Jennifer captures the magic of teaching, which is the personal relationships we develop with such incredibly diverse groups of students, some of whom we keep in touch with over the years. In fact, sometimes many years later. And such was the case with you, I gather. So you derive joy from the idea that your students were, in many ways, your children, and you love keeping in touch with them. And that's very true for me as well. So to what extent is this really a fair statement in terms of how you sort of see the world of education and the way that we build relationships with kids and how we stay in touch with them and what that actually means to the educator day in and day out over many years of being in the classroom or being in learning environments? Well, it is monumental. It is extremely helpful to them, the students, and to me, their former teacher, because they do remember everything that you did. They 
might not always remember a detail you taught them in a lesson, but they remember things you said, what you wore, how you said it, what you related about the topic you taught them and connected it to the real world because I taught business subjects. Mm. And today, right now, I could bing, 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 bing any number of former students who would do anything to help me, would relate to me. I hear from them at holiday. Out of the blue, I might get a phone call from one of them. Mm. And I think it is the connection that they, and it's still very, very true. It's probably more important today than it is. Now, today we have all of these other overarching things that come into play in education that we have to deal with, but you still have to deal whether you have them face-to-face, whether you have them in an online class, you still have to deal with them as individuals and working with them and their parents as much as you can to help them get headed in the right direction so they can move forward in their lives is monumental. And I hear, if I've heard it once, I've heard it a thousand times, and I'm not exaggerating. I taught at the very beginning of my teaching career, Josh, I taught typing, which of course today is keyboarding or whatever. Right. Well, they have said to me, the best class I ever had was your class in typing. You taught me how to proofread. I never proofread. I have to proofread, but I don't. And I think of you and I mean, that's just one thing, but that doesn't seem like much, but it really is a lot. And I have a number of former students that are excellent teachers. I have, it, it does. So yes, mm. it's had a major impact and still does because I taught so many years in the same place. But in the course of that time, I was very heavily involved and still am. Like when I got into virtual high school work and I still am. That's great, Dorothea. I I recall once, by the time I started teaching in the early 90s, email had arrived. And I recall very clearly one of my students coming back to me many, many years later and saying, you actually taught me how to write an email and how to proof it and how to compose it, how to format it. And she said, that's been huge in my life because of the way that I communicate with people. And it's funny because I was teaching history, Dorothy. So, you know, but students were starting to email me and, you know, you take every opportunity to work with them, right? To help them develop 
to help them develop Absolutely. their skills. Yeah. Every teacher is an English teacher. <laughs> yep. Yep, exactly. So Dorothy, that's a perfect segue to my next question, which is about business, in fact. So while teaching business and technology at Sacopee Valley High School, did I say that correctly? Yes, Sacopee Valley High School. It's it's an Indian name. Yes. It's a coast of Saco River and Ossipee River. Got it. So while teaching at Sacopee Valley High School in Maine, you were awarded an important Goals 2000 Innovative Education Grant for your school which mm -hmm. created an opportunity for your entire school district to explore and implement current educational approaches for this mm -hmm. and your tireless work to tie the business community to your classroom and schools mm -hmm. in general, you were recognized with the Milken Award, which is like the Oscars of education. So my question is, from where did this passion, dare I say, for connecting schools, teaching, and learning to the world of business and technology come from, Dorothy? Well, it comes from the fact that I really know that I like business. I, I like, like the topic of business, and that's why I majored in business education in college. And I see the value of it. I see the real world connection. I see an opportunity for, and I know business people are hurting in finding employees. They yeah. were back then and they, they, of course, now it's very, very serious. Right. But it, it comes from my personal interest in business. And I like the whole concept of the business skills. I enjoyed using the equipment and as it's progressed, I mean, you got to realize I went from a typewriter to where we are now. Mm. And I mean, I kind of am a wild card in the deck because there are a lot of people who just, you know, well, that's nice and all that, but you never stop learning and you, I've learned. And so my interest was in business. I knew that there was an opportunity to teach students things that they could apply to either get a job or use in their personal life as they went through life. And almost everything you do, you need to have a business background, case in point, a course in personal finance. Right. I testified before the education committee at the legislature on that one. And uh, that every that in the state of Maine, there there are like nine or ten states in the country mm. that require students to have a course in personal finance. I think to answer your question is I recognize there was a need a need for these kinds of pieces of information, and I always remembered what my mother told me. She said, "Dot, I know you want to be a teacher." Then it was a fourth grade teacher. We want you to be a teacher, but you need to know how to type. You need to know how to take shorthand and you need to know how to handle your money. Mm. How about that? She was right. Mm. <laughs> but I mean, shorthand's gone by the board, but I taught it and I still use it on the, on the side. Mm. And so, you know, one follow-up question, and, and this is before we go to our first break, Dorothy, how far have we come in the United States in terms of businesses and schools collaborating to develop 
real world learning opportunities for kids. What are what are some of the highlights in your mind, and where are we on that meter of you know engagement in terms of businesses and schools and partnerships and that sort of thing? We're working on it. We are a work in progress, mm-hmm. and we're not. We have made some progress, but what has happened is that it's sort of like the format that businesses are using. Now, one technique that I used, which was highly effective to me, was having a an advisory committee and a group of people that were from business that we met like three times a year. And I invited the school board, the whole staff, and my principal, I invited parents every, to have them say, one time the, we had a principal that kind of thought that, you know, we didn't need some of these things. And that ended when we had the advisory committee meeting because the business people just flat out told them. Now, the thing is that the format today is in Maine and in a lot of schools across the country, they have career and technical centers. They're Mm. called CEEs, which I'm sure you're familiar with. Yes. And every state has them in strategic geographic locations across their states. Some are right next in the next building and some aren't, but that is a, a great thing because usually there's an opportunity for internships and they can work with businesses. I mean, businesses right now, which is unlike almost when I started out teaching, but right now they're offering students practically the moon to for an apprenticeship in certain fields welding yes boat building i mean some of these it's pretty phenomenal they'll pay for their college they'll do this they'll do that there's really no need um, if you work it and mm. you plan mm. to be in deep financial problem when you get out of college if you work it yeah, I love that, Dorothy. And we we actually have a principal here in my home state of Hawaii. He's actually now the superintendent, as it turns out, of schools in Hawaii. But one of the innovations that he brought to his very large high school was that business advisory committee that you're describing. And they would meet periodically on campus, and he would include students as well. And they kind of get the lay of the land, the lay of the business land out there. What's going on in business, right? Well, it's very helpful, and I've been on them after, I mean, over the years, I've also been on those committees as a member, Yeah. but one of the things that that committee also helped me do is get internships for my students, and they got really a lot of good jobs. The networking, they got their college education paid for, I mean, they had to work hard. They had to do this, and, you know, it's definitely helpful to do that. I don't know if you've ever sat in on one of those committees, but you'd be a key person. You would Mm. really enjoy that. Yes, thank you. Yes, I have. And they're amazing. Those conversations are truly amazing. Yeah, that's great. That's great. So, hey, everyone, we have been talking with Dorothy Maxwell, a former Maine Teacher of the Year, who has also been recognized by the Milken Family Foundation with its National Educator Award. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hi, fellow educators. I'm Steve Shapiro. And like you, I'm excited about the possibilities of what school could be. 
please check out my podcast, Experience Matters, where I talk to guests ranging from big national thinkers like Daniel Pink and Tony Wagner to recent high school graduates about the most profound learning experiences of their youth. Then we dig into the implications for how we can reshape schools to produce powerful breakthrough learning for all of our students. Education can take many forms, but whatever form it takes, experience matters. Hey there, are you interested in hearing weekly conversations with authors, leaders, and practitioners at the forefront of learning and education innovation? Then you'll love the Getting Smart podcast. This podcast amplifies the incredible work being done by some of the most innovative minds in education. Learn new leadership styles, new technologies, new frameworks and mindsets, and get the fuel you need to stay motivated and curious. Together, we can empower all learners to thrive. It's available at gettingsmart.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi, friends. This is Toy Hirschman from EntreEd. It is my great honor to uplift this excellent podcast, What School Could Be?, As always, we are super excited to support innovation in education. We've been lucky enough to feature some of the incredible What School Could Be educators on our podcast. If you are looking to be inspired by entrepreneurs and entrepreneurial educators and other great minds from across the world, check out the EntreEd Talk podcast and please like and subscribe and leave a review. Thanks for tuning in. Hey everyone, we are back with the award-winning educator, Dorothy Maxwell, who has been in face-to-face and online education for more than 50 years. So Dorothy, you shared with me that you think all online learning programs are not created equal, which I think is a good starting point to talk about virtual high school learning with which you are a teacher, site coordinator, faculty advisor, online educator, facilitator, and board member. In other words, you are a credible witness because you work at both the ground level and the 10,000-foot level. So what makes virtual high school learning unique, Dorothy? What is its approach, its method that makes you such a strong advocate and If I may squeeze in one more part to this question, how did VHS respond to the COVID-19 pandemic? I I can imagine you were perfectly positioned. What was learned as a result of the pandemic? How is VHS different, say, from Google Classroom, which is a tool educators frequently use and did use during the pandemic? Well, the first part about COVID was that when COVID happened, I was teaching online the way I am now. And so therefore, when it was determined that the school district would have to go online through Google Classrooms, my students, I was then a site coordinator too, Mm. they were all indoctrinated, so to speak, or they were all accustomed to the format for a virtual high school learning online class. They had the time of year that it happened was around April and we never went back after April vacation. So those students, I just had no trouble at all with my classes that I taught as long as the students that I supervised, they had 
they were great because their biggest issues <laughs> and also across the country were with connectivity with some of them in their homes because some of them did not have the connectivity the way that they needed it to do their work. Mm -hmm. And so what we had to do at virtual high school is work with them and around them and through them to make that happen. Mm -hmm. So that part about COVID, that's how we handled that. And we actually were pretty successful in my case with that, but I was relentless, which I always have been in, in a loving and caring way. But, you know, the show goes on and let's go. And if you can't do it this way, let's find another way. So, all right. Now, the, the first part of your question about why virtual high school learning is not the same as the others is that a lot, there are if you did the research, there are a number of states that have virtual schools. Yep. There are a number of national companies that sell programs to states, to schools. And those, they do not necessarily have the heart and soul of working with the student to help them acquire the knowledge in an online course that virtual high school learning does because there are a lot of them. And so that can cause a student to not do well. It's like a face-to-face -face, or to just want to drop out. So, you know, you have to have safeguards in place for that. Now, virtual high school learning which is now almost 30 years old mm -hmm. and they got it virtual vhs learning happened because it was part of a national grant and it was written as that and it was funded and then it's a nonprofit, and so the idea was afterward after the grant ran out to just get sponsors or people who would buy into the concept of the value of it. The big thing with virtual is the professional development for staff, the fact that all the staff have to be certified as teachers in their state. They have to have taken a graduate level course that we offer that I have taught a number of times mm. in online teaching methodologies. And they also, the first time out of the gate, they have to have a faculty advisor. So if you were starting to teach online today and you had 30 years of teaching, I had taught 42 years wow. when I switched over to online. So, right. and then it's the follow-up that they do. And the success rate, they offer like, I don't know, two or 300 courses and they offer advanced placement courses, they offer all of the subject area courses, they mm -hmm. offer all kinds of individuals specialized like in English, and they offer meteorology, they, they offer a wide variety of, of courses. And the students do well in them, the success rate in the AP courses is good. And they're always, they're never standing still. 
they're always moving ahead and looking for ways that they can make the best better. Yeah, that's great. And it, it sounds like one of the the true sort of gold standard elements to VHS learning is the opportunity for choice. In other words, the kids are choosing courses that are interesting to them, not that are necessarily required of them. And because they have that choice, and, and I think one of the ways that we can get at this, Dorothy, is actually to dive into a couple of the courses, which I, I want to do now. So you, Dorothy, are teaching now, and you've taught in the past, the VHS learning course titled, Who Do You Want to Be When You Grow Up? Uh-huh. So first, I love that this is a who question, not a what question. Uh-huh. And second, I'm going to read, bear with me here, this will take a minute, the entire course description. So listeners, hang in there, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read it all the way through. So quote, metacognition, what does that mean? This course encourages you to search inside yourself. This course does not answer the question, what do you want to be when you grow up? But rather, it asks the question, what kind of person do you want to be when you grow up? In this course, you will focus on self-reflection and introspection while making or thinking about the future. You will explore why you make the choices you make as well as who and what else could those choices impact. Every other week, you will be given a hypothetical scenario to respond to, and each week you will interview a different person and reflect on the responses you get. It's important to note that although this is not a career awareness course, learning more about the kind of person you want to be can help guide you into making appropriate career choices, end quote. So, oh my, Dorothy, this, like, be still my heart. This one really jumped out at me. And so... I kind of feel like this course should be required for all American kids, grades 7 through 12. So please tell our listeners what it was like, what it is like to teach this course, and maybe share with us a couple of the hypothetical scenarios that kids experience in this course. Well, it is a lot of real fun to teach, and sometimes you have classes when you start out, that usually there's an ad drop period and you, there's all this in the first week and a half adding and dropping. And last spring, when I taught, who who do I want to be when I grow up? I had <laughs> 27 seniors in this class, mm. all right? Seniors in high school. And I thought, oh boy. Well, long story short, no one dropped. No one dropped. Now, what was it about the course? Well, first of all, they have to have, they have to come up with a person to be a mentor through the course. Mm. And this person, in addition to interviewing other people, for example, the mentor might be like my aunt, my mother, my grandmother. One activity they did that I just, I loved having them do and read it, was they had to interview a more mature person, such as their grandmother. Mm. One girl wanted to interview her great-grandmother, which I absolutely let her do, and write up. And she, you know, showed, did a little video with her great-grandmother, who was very elderly. But, you know, she said at the end of that activity that, 
she didn't, she learned so much from her great grandmother. She didn't realize all these things from doing this. And I having not had any grandparents just by the luck of the draw, and there were several others, I think interviewing their mentors under various circumstances, like they might have to ask them like, what kind of education did you get when you were growing up? What kinds of work did you do? What were the tasks? How did you get paid? All right. Hmm. That was one. How did you get paid? And when some of them said they didn't get paid, they just had to do it. And there were a lot of different scenarios. And I just really, really enjoyed reading them and hearing them tell that and one girl interviewed her mother and she said well, like what was the hardest part of like she's in high school now a senior bringing me up and she was a single mother so she related you know i was alone i was a lot younger and you know i mean this is real life josh yeah yeah, absolutely. And Dorothy, I would I would circle back to where we started this conversation when you were talking about questions and that growing up on the farm and growing up in the, in the school environment and the way that you were engaged, it was all about asking question after question. And it sounds like, you know, the real testament to the value of a course is that 27 students did not drop the course, not one of them. And that it sounds like this is a course about questions right when you're when you're interviewing people you have to be able to ask great questions and i'm just so taken by this because i don't know maybe dorothy i never got anything like this when i was a kid and subsequently when i became a teacher as a history teacher one of my favorite parts of teaching history whether it was european or american whatever was engaging kids in these genealogy projects where they had to interview their moms and their dads and, mm -hmm. and grandparents and all of that. And the preparation for that is fantastic. So I want to come at this slightly from a different direction, but just a different course, because I have some other questions about the kinds of courses that VHS Learning offers. So while surfing around in your catalog, one course in particular really jumped out at me, Dorothy. It's an art history course for grades 9 through 12. And mm -hmm. I, I want to ask two, possibly three questions about this course, which might help listeners understand all of VHS Learning's courses. So first, let me share just how much I hated my high school art history course back in the 70s. My teacher simply had students for a whole semester, Dorothy, memorize names and dates of artists and their works for points and the most points got an A. And so your VHS learning art history course reads as follows. And again, bear with me, I'm gonna read the short mm -hmm. description into the record here. Why do impressionists seem so mundane now, but were so shocking in their day? Why did Pollock toss and drip all that paint around and get paid a lot of money for it? What was all the hoopla at the Brooklyn Museum a few years ago? This art history course will answer all these questions and raise a few more. Students will visit virtual museums, oh my, that's awesome, all over the world, mm -hmm. and look at the connections among various types of art that have been created for the past 500 years. 
and this course aims to expand the student's understanding and love of history and visual art, end quote. So, wow, if I'd only had this course 50 years ago in school. So here's my first question, Dorothy. I'm intrigued that ninth graders could be taking this course with older students all the way up to 12th graders. And it feels like online learning might be a rich place, as you mentioned earlier in the conversation, in your own experience, for multi-age learners to engage with each other while they're learning. So what are your thoughts about this? I absolutely think it is a great opportunity for them to engage with others. And here's another very important point about engaging with others. Just using the school I, Sacopee Valley High School, the, the thing is that it's a rural Maine high school. And so I have taught students from all over the world. Yeah. And these students that are students taking courses, they interact with students from all over the world. And I, as a teacher online, interact with students all over the world. I mean, I was looking at my class list this morning and, you know, I always have two or three international students and they come from China, Argentina, Germany. I mean, there's no special formula, but it's that in itself right yeah. there, that point yeah. is well worth taking a course. The other thing is like, I've had students take that art history course. And yes, in the state of Maine, they do have an art history requirement, which that virtual high school learning course does meet. Mm. But it's a wonderful course and they've always liked it. They liked it because they liked the opportunity to learn at their pace, the way the, you know, virtual high school learning is organized in what is called asynchronous learning, which means that you don't go on there at eight o'clock and teach the whole class for an hour because you've got students from all over the world. Yes. So you might have a student from Hawaii, you know, you have to accommodate. And at first thought, at first blush, it seems like, oh, well, that probably would be a problem. But it really isn't because you can, you can set them up and schedule them. You know, we have office hours. We have, mm. there are so many opportunities for them to get help and all. But yes, Mm. That, that opportunity, that art history course is a great course. Mm. Okay, so second question then, which is a, it's a perfect segue to what you, from what you just said a second ago. This course seems ripe, Dorothy, for all sorts of discussions about art and history and contemporary issues. So how does VHS learning address the issue of discussions online? Like what are best practices in terms of engaging learners in discussions, in virtual spaces, and as you mentioned a second ago, these are this is asynchronous work that's being done. The discussions are handled by, the work is all sort of given out. It goes online, like this 
at every Wednesday morning at 12.01. And at every course has at least one discussion topic mm. for that week. All right. So this week's is for the beginning. I'll just use that one is on introducing yourself. And there's a place in the course that says discussions. And so if you were in the class and you wanted to comment, you would click on discussions and add topic. And then you could key in or speak or whatever that, oh, by the way, that there are other, you know, there are different formats. So they can address hearing impaired. They can yes. address special needs if they have an educational technician with them. So they respond. And discussions is a hard thing for some students to get the hang of because they're kind of standoffish. You know, they're kind of frightened. They kind of like, aren't sure they're afraid they'll say something incorrectly so yeah. that's where the teacher jumps in and you know oh okay well like i go in there every day and i go oh josh you you made that comment about michelangelo and why did you feel that way or what are you going to do in the future to make sure you don't do whatever yeah. so you know and some students because of the way they are, we're all different. And by the way, I think that is another real beauty of a virtual high school learning is all that follow up. And now nothing is perfect, but you know, if you have a snowstorm and there's no school, if you have a hurricane, if you have a fire, like yep. if you had had students on, so you, you have to deal with all those, but those discussions are very, very important. Yeah, I love that. When I was teaching European history in the early aughts, I had the privilege of being one of the first teachers, I think, to use an asynchronous online discussion forum very, very early in the game. And Dorothy, it was remarkable. There were kids extremely reserved and shy who became, you know, the next Thomas Jeffersons, for goodness sake, you know, in these discussion forums. And it, it really put fuel in my tank as a teacher mm -hmm. and engaged me and made me, you know, really up my game in terms of how to engage people in conversations in these asynchronous environments. And I just love that idea. So, okay, so one more question then about this art history course before we go to our second break. So, the art history course description, Dorothy, also includes the following words, which likely I would never have seen when I was a student in the 70s. So, quote, as in any art history course, images of the nude human figure will be viewed and discussed. Some controversial topics will be raised during the course, particularly when discussing censorship and contemporary art, end quote. So, you've been in education for a long time, Dorothy. How did we come to this place, to these kinds of disclaimers? Is this a good thing? Is it troubling? What are your thoughts about how we've reached this point? I think that we've reached this point because a lot of emphasis has been leveraged on a smaller group of people that doesn't necessarily reflect the whole thing. Yeah. And I also think that there are people who are not educated, trained in how to be sensitive to 
a lot of different situations. And so we've run into this in Maine, and I think I read that there were not 100% sure. Nine schools the past year, the libraries were, yeah, you know, with books. But the, out of all that, only two actually had a book removed. Right. So, okay. So they went through all the different steps. I think it's not what happens. I think it's how the people who are in those positions, like school board administration and teachers and parents, how they handle it, you know? Yeah. I mean, if their religion or their beliefs is one thing, we respect it. But in the real world, we're all in this together. Yeah. And that's kind of the place that I came to, Dorothy. I really, this this part of the course description really got me thinking. And I, I finally just sort of settled with it and said, all right, let's go ahead and do these disclaimers. If we need them, we need them. Go ahead. Let's just do it. And then we can move on and continue with the course, right? And you have to be, as you know, you have to be aware of the legal ramifications, the, sure, you know, those kinds of things that we have to deal with. Not that we didn't have to deal with them 50 years ago, but the extent to which we have to deal with them has been greatly increased. And I think it's not what happens, it's how you handle it that's very key. Yeah. So the bottom line, Dorothy, is that, and this happens almost with every episode, there is this moment where I feel like I want to go back to school. And these two courses, Who Do You Want to Be When You Grow Up and this art history course, really made me feel that way. And I, I love that. I mean, if there's if a course catalog gets you excited, you're on the right track, in my opinion. And so that's terrific. And and thank you for, for engaging me with all these questions about these two courses. Dorothy, I'm going to squeeze in one more question before we go to our second break. Okay. In preparing for this episode, I really got to thinking about a term we often use in education, which is that it is a zero-sum game. Meaning for one person's, if one person's passion for, let's say, civics education, for example, wins the day at the campus or state level, other passions like yours for financial competency and literacy, schools' connections to businesses and business literacy end up getting cut, such as the nature of a zero-sum game. So I wonder what you think about this, Dorothy, with your experience in education and how we navigate this zero-sum issue. How do we offer everything to all students? I think that the best way to do that is to explore other avenues to pursue and to work on to try to make the powers that be understand that the whatever course is necessary. And that's one of the things that I have been very, very involved in is encouraging like new teachers. And in Maine, now we have organized, I am so happy that we way back when I was teacher of the year, we formed this association that, and now we have county teachers of the year. And we have, I think that those of us that believe firmly in the value of these things that 
seem to be cut, they can use their voice yes. because there is strength in number. Absolutely. And especially those teachers, those wonderful newer teachers. And I mean, there's strength in anyone that it's a combination of everyone working together to bring about the force of reason to some people. And it isn't just about money. And that's what I would do. I would just pursue I would another avenue. And giving up is not what I would do. Mm -hmm. You know, you've given me a great idea, which I'll share very briefly before we go to our second break. I'm thinking that Hawaii, where I'm based, has many, many years of Teachers of the Year. And there is power, as you describe, in bringing those wonderful educators together and leveraging what they think about education to help make education better for kids, right? Absolutely. Yeah. There's a lot of leverage there. And you know what, as I have found, is that a lot of them are just waiting to be asked. Yes. And also, as you, we haven't discussed teacher shortage, but there's a huge teacher shortage and all kinds of things. And that sometimes you can interest someone, but having them give their voice is very, very helpful. Yep. And in fact, you read my mind because teacher shortages is what we're going to talk about when we come back from our break. So that's great. So, hey, everyone, we've been talking with Maine's 1994 Teacher of the Year and Milken Awardee, Dorothy Maxwell. Stay with us. We'll be right back. This is Guy Kawasaki. If you want to learn how to be a remarkable person, please check out my podcast, Remarkable People. I interview people like Roy Yamaguchi, Margaret Atwood, Jane Goodall, Stephen Wolfram, Stephen Pinker, Ariana Huffington, and Steve Wozniak. The point of the podcast is to help you become a little bit more remarkable. To learn more, go to remarkablepeople.com. Thank you. Aloha, my name is Aaron Shorn, a previous guest on this very podcast. I am also now head of growth and community at Hawaii's own Unruler. Unruler is a collaborative mobile and web platform that accelerates innovation, grows culture and community, and celebrates learning. Learners post multimedia, tag their learning, and through comments are able to work together asynchronously. Each post is a moment of learning that forms the foundation of a joyous learning journey. We can be found at unrulr.com. Mahalo. Are you ready to shake things up in the classroom? Then get ready to blast off into the future of education with the Teacher Nerds podcast. Join Joe DiPaolo and Ron Nober as they share their own experiences, as well as talk with guests who are experts and innovators in education. From engaging teaching techniques to the latest educational technology, this podcast is a must-listen for anyone passionate about the future of learning. Subscribe and get ready to learn with the Teacher Nerds Podcast. Hey everyone, we are back with Dorothy Maxwell, who has been in face-to-face -face and online education for more than 50 years and is the vice chair of the board of directors at Virtual High School Learning. So Dorothy, as you mentioned prior to the break, you shared with me that you have several super big meta questions on your mind. And one is the shortage of teachers in the United States 
The other is your hot button topic, which is preparing students to financially manage their lives starting at an early age. So let's take these one at a time. So what do you think, Dorothy, is the secret sauce to getting more Americans to become teachers? Well, I think that one of the the big things is the recognition that teachers are the glue that holds a lot of lives together and that they need to pay them a fair price and they need to offer them opportunities for developing their own skills. And it isn't just like dollar bills. It's it's the opportunity to participate in all kinds of things without cost to them. I mean, financial costs, because, you know, when you say, have you ever thought of going into teaching? And they go, well, you know, I go to college, I spend all that money. And what happens in a lot of school districts is that they go to a school district that pays less, they get two or three years experience, this happens in Maine, and then they zoom off to another school district. And there's been a lot of conversation about standardizing pay for teachers across the state. I'm sure that's happened in a number of states. But we have to do activities, go to the colleges do one-on-one meetings, do things to interest them in teaching, have former students that, you know, I had a former student that worked in big business for 20 years and she said, I've had it. (laughs) She went back to school, became a teacher and she's still teaching. Yeah, that's great, Dorothy. I, in fact, one of my previous guests, Esther Kwan, who is our current Milken Award winner here in Hawaii, spoke also about this. And and what she talked about was our schools need to think of themselves more broadly as employers, and they need to figure out how to be great employers. Mm -hmm. And that isn't just pay. That's all of the things that great companies do to retain their employees and to attract Mm -hmm. great employees, right? I agree. <laughs> yeah. And okay, so then to the to the second question, the meta question that's on your mind, where in your mind, Dorothy, do we stand here in 2023 in terms of preparing young people to financially manage their lives, especially in this age of complex economic mechanisms that govern people's lives and are, are sometimes very difficult to understand? Where do, where do you think we stand? now in terms of young people's financial literacy? They're in big trouble. Mm, Okay. They are sold a, I've taught personal finance at virtual high school in several formats, which by the way, virtual high school learning offers courses in a variety of formats, which makes it a very attractive kind of thing for a school sometimes. But the personal finance, some states do require them to take a course in it, and they need to become aware of what happens with the credit cards, what happens with loans, what happens with all these things. They are not educated enough in it, and they need education constantly, and it needs to keep, you know, being reintroduced to their minds because they don't understand how that all works. 
Mm. I mean, not when they're getting credit cards in the mail. I think the credit cards are the biggest yeah. problems to them. Yeah. And also updating all of the types of financial mechanisms that, that change very quickly. Oh. And if you don't understand them, then sometimes you can be the victim of them. And when I grew up, there weren't credit cards, but I was brought up with, you know, like stuff for major, major things. If, you know, you save the money and then you get it. Yeah. And I always view that as a really good challenge because then it makes the whatever you want mean a lot more to you. And there are ways to do that. And interestingly enough, there are so many places that offer information about personal finance, right. banks, credit unions. It's unreal. Yeah. And they'll help you. And, you know, we're we're dealing in a world we that is changing rapidly. And if they get stuck early on, they're in deep trouble for a long, long time in their life. Yeah. And I would circle back to something you said earlier, which is, you know, your passion for having business connections or businesses and schools partnering together. Mm -hmm. If you do have a business advisory council at your high school, for example, you're going to hear a lot from those business people about the necessity of having financial literacy because it's that's what keeps companies stable. It's what keeps their employees stable is being able to manage all of that. So there's lots of connections here, Dorothy, and I love the fact that that this is a big question on your mind and that you're still plugging away at trying to move the needle on this. You know, if you're not progressing, you're regressing. Yes, and that's right. You've got to be looking at that those kind of things because yeah. it's not going to go away. And it's, it's really, really sad when you see things happen that didn't need to happen. Yeah, absolutely agree. So two more topics before we finish this wonderful conversation. You know, Dorothy, I'm about to turn 65 and you're slightly ahead of me in years. And I would I would love to talk about the idea of ageism. Mm -hmm. I have experienced ageism a number of times in the past few years, which are those sometimes not so subtle comments that suggest I'm past my prime or not relevant anymore. And in fact, I feel like, especially as the producer and host of this podcast, I'm only just beginning a, a really marvelous renaissance-like chapter in my life, but a chapter built on experiences from four different careers over more than 40 years. So based on a couple weeks deep dive into your life, Dorothy, and your work, you also seem to be in the middle of a renaissance and you feel strongly that age is an asset, not a liability. So I wonder what you think about this. I know our listeners would love to know your thoughts about ageism and how we overcome that in our culture. I definitely have come to the conclusion that there is this slight, I don't want to say stigma, but you know, yeah. I think that the tide is turning because 
people are realizing that they need retired people, so to speak. People are having to work longer. The issue, it's all in the mind. If the mind, what is it? If the heart can believe it and the mind can conceive it, then you can achieve it. There you go. Wow. And what I'm saying is that you, Josh, have so much to offer and are offering it. And I have determined that I feel that I'm not through my work. I feel that I'm kind of in a renaissance. I mean, I've moved from a face-to-face teacher. I've moved into a new chapter of my life. And I'm doing, I like to be doing different things in different ways, but still involve education and teaching. And I think that people are finally beginning to realize that as long as the person is able to do it, they need us in the profession of education and other professions. Yes. They need these people. Yeah, absolutely, Dorothy. And and to our listeners, if you just Google search David Brooks and The Atlantic, the magazine, yes. there is a fantastic piece that he wrote just recently about how we really can be looking to the older folks in our culture for inspiration and that really possibly the revolution may come from us, not from necessarily from the younger kids, as we always seem to think. And what I love, Dorothy, about what you've said and what you've written to me about this is that you are, in fact, continuing to work to be a good ancestor, as you know, people 100 years from now will look back and go, that Dorothy Maxwell, she was a great ancestor. And I love that idea. So... Yep, we will continue to do the good work, both of us. That's awesome. Absolutely. Yes. And, you know, I think serving as an example to young people and talking to them. Yes. And, I mean, I have people that I've taught that call me up and just say, could I ask you your opinion of this? And I'll talk them through different things. That's one of the advantages of being in the same place so long. Yeah, it's a nice feeling to get a query like that and you realize that it's coming from a recognition of Mm -hmm. a long life of experiences and experience matters, right? So yeah, that's awesome. Mm -hmm. Terrific. So Dorothy, here we are at the end of this great conversation. I love to close episodes by having my guests shout out to the giants, those mentors, guides, coaches upon whose shoulders they stand. And in your case, You noted, of course, your mother and two colleagues, Dr. Ken Murphy and Susan Levy. Mm -hmm. So who are these two giants and in what ways do you carry their spirits in your proverbial backpack of influences and inspirations? Well, Ken Murphy, who passed about three months ago, I had him as a college professor for graduate courses that I took when I got both of my master's degree. I took a lot of courses from him and his insight was just phenomenal. And then I did an internship. I got certified as a superintendent because he wanted me to. He said, oh, you'd be a great superintendent, Dorothy. And I never became a superintendent because virtual came along. But I did my internship with him at his school then, he was superintendent in Yarmouth, Maine, which is an outstanding school in the United States. And 
he led by example. The mm -hmm. way he included me every meeting, every activity. At the end of it, we would have a session where we discuss what went on. For example, did you notice the way that principal answered that question about that school? How did you think about that, Dorothy? Mm. That, those kind of things. And he always included me in everything. And he he was he was wonderful and everyone liked him. He was very insightful, very futuristic. The other person, Susan Levy, she is the person I connected with when I started taking the training to become an online teacher. She facilitated it. She had been a retired art teacher at a high school in Massachusetts, for, and she retired for two months, and then virtual started, and she got involved in that. In fact, I heard from her earlier this week. She's very insightful. Yeah. She's very knowledgeable. She tends to, again, lead by example, and she sees the vision. Like, I tend to see the vision out there. I look out at the end of the horizon, the vision, like what do we want this to be five years, 10 years? And then, you know, I come back, but to reality, but you got to do that. And she, she convinced me to, to facilitate the online teaching and be a mentor to the new teachers. I'd already done all that in my school face to face, but now I do it mm. with new teachers at virtual. And we'll be, you know, doing it this semester with some. And so those two people were very instrumental. And, you know, another person I didn't put down there, but was my very first grade teacher who just died like maybe three years ago. Mm. And when I received some of my awards, she, she'd write me notes. And, you know, if if we as people don't think that, people are watching and listening. It's a silent majority, really. They are, they're listening for us. They're listening, they're looking to us. They may not always be able to verbalize everything they wanna say, but mm. we need those kind of people. Yeah, absolutely. What was her name? Genevieve Morin, M-O-R-I-N, G-E-N-I-E-V-E, -E -E, I think. And she was wonderful, you know. Mm. So that's great, Dorothy. What we'll do is we'll dedicate this episode to Genevieve and to Susan and to Ken mm -hmm. and just acknowledge their leadership and their mentorship and their coaching and their guiding in your life. And I just love that idea. I also love the idea, Dorothy, of inclusion, especially when you're talking about Ken Murphy, that great leadership means you include all of the people that you're leading and everything mm -hmm. that you're doing and not not exclude them or direct them to what they're doing. It's very important. Yeah, yeah, love that idea. So Dorothy Maxwell, wow, this has been such a great conversation. Thank you so much for your time today. We at What School Could Be are cheering you on in the work that you're doing with virtual high school learning. <laughs> Thank you. And so we'll stay in touch and really appreciate the time today. Thank you. Oh, you're so welcome and you keep up the wonderful work and do keep in touch and I'll be looking for this. <laughs> That's awesome. Thank you, Dorothy. Okay, bye. My editor, creative consultant and sound engineer is the talented Evan Kurahara. Our theme music comes from the vast catalog of music created by my friend of 40 years, 
the remarkable pianist Michael Sloan. Producer of 12 albums with over 100 songs, Michael Sloan is featured in Apple Music, Spotify, and all major music platforms. You can also find his work at his YouTube channel. Michael has listeners in over 100 countries and over 2,000 cities to date. Support these episodes with remarkable, innovative, and imaginative educators and education leaders by giving us your own rating and writing us a review at your favorite podcast store. The series is underwritten by education change agent Ted Dintersmith, the executive producer of the acclaimed documentary film Most Likely to Succeed and the author of the best-selling book What School Could Be. Please join the What School Could Be global online community by going to community.whatschoolcouldbe.org or by downloading the What School Could Be app from your favorite app store. The What School Could Be podcast is brought to you by Josh Rapoon Productions. Send your feedback to josh at whatschoolcouldbe.org. Also, follow the show on Twitter at WSCB Podcast. Listeners, the most important thing you can do in these uncertain times is to bring kindness and compassion into the world. We need a surplus of both right now. Until the next episode, ahui ho and take care. <laughs>